The scripture reading today is from Matthew 26, verses 36 through 56. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, Do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Amen. If you read the Gospels for yourself, self, and you should, by the way, you see that people are always asking about Jesus. Who is this guy? Who is he? Uh, the people in the temple when Jesus is age 12 and they hear him talk and teach, they, they ask, who is this? Uh, his disciples ask of him, who is this that the wind and the waves obey him? And of course, the, the other people, when they hear Jesus teach, when he's a full grown man, as they say, they ask, who is this? How did he learn to do these things? And of course, finally, Jesus himself, he turns to his own disciples at one point and he asks them, who do you say that I am? It's a crucial question. Who is this guy? Who is he? Well, this passage today we're going to see shows us that because he is the one who came, number one, to do the will, number two, to drink the cup, that number three, we can put down the sword. He came to do the will and drink the cup so we 
can put down the sword. Let's go here, number one, and, and see that uh, he's the one who's come to do the will. And last week we saw that uh, Jesus' last supper is taking place in this upper room, dining room area, with his disciples in Jerusalem. And here he goes, and he finishes his meal, and he moves outside. He takes his disciples with him into a garden. And knowing that his time to live is short... He begins to pray, probably something you do too, right? Uh, but he begins to, as he begins to pray, as he moves into the garden, he begins to feel something new and different. And we'll get to what that is in a moment. But first, I want to look at what he prays here because his prayer here is so crucial for us, so relevant to our time, our place, our cultural moment right here, right now. Let's look at his prayer. Jesus prays this. He says, my father... If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as what? What does he say? You will, your will. So Jesus here is acknowledging, the point is, that God has a will. There's something God has willed, something God has chosen, and that Jesus is wrestling with what God has willed. What is that thing? What's the will of God here. Well, three different times actually in the Gospels, Jesus tells us because he tells his disciples. And if you, you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you know, Jesus has actually just said the will of God for the third time, just a few chapters, actually a few days before this, in Matthew chapter 20. Let's see what he says the will of God is. He says, we are going up to Jerusalem Right, they're on their way in. The Son of Man, that's himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests, teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. So here Jesus tells you, again for the third time, he has come to die. God's will was for Jesus to die. Why? Well, again, Jesus tells you here in Matthew 20, he says, the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. And there it is. It's God's will. It was to send Jesus to die as a ransom for, that word means, the word for means to be put in the place of, literally, to be exchanged for, to be substituted For many, the will of the Father was to send Jesus the Son to die in the place of humankind, this is saying, as a substitute for their sins, they could be released from the penalty and the power of those sins and be made right with God. Now, there's a lot of people today who don't like that. They don't like that at all. And uh, Paul Young, you may have heard the name, he's actually the writer of the, the famous book, The Shack. He, he hates that thought. He actually echoes a lot of voices today. In another book, he says that's, that kind of thinking is actually divine child abuse. That's what he calls it. He says a loving father would never do that. So is that what this is? Is this, is this what's going on here? Divine child abuse maybe? Or, or maybe it's just another kind of ancient myth, you know, where the bloodthirsty deity demands a sacrifice, a child sacrifice, right? Well, you know, of course, if you've been forced, forced to read your Greek classics, like the Iliad, you see, and there's, you know, King Agamemnon, and he's being forced by the gods to sacrifice his daughter, to get the good wind so he can make his way, right? Is, the wind will blow at his back. Is that what this is? Well, 
course it's not, not by a long shot. And what I want you to see today is not only how this is different, but why it actually had to be this way. Now, first of all, this is radically different than anything that Homer or the Greek dudes could ever come up with because what this passage tells you, it's so different, is telling you that, that this isn't some God who demands that you sacrifice right? This is God substituting himself in the place of people as a loving sacrifice. Ancient myths, legends, there were nothing like this. A God who puts himself in your place. But second, here's why Paul Young and others are wrong. Here's why. Because all real love is substitutionary sacrifice. All real love is substitutionary sacrifice. If it's not substitutionary sacrifice, it's not real love. And let me give you two examples. If you're a parent here today, you know that substitutionary sacrifice is the basis for all loving and legitimate parenting. Because when you have a child, it's wonderful. (laughs) It's meaningful. But you could compare it, some would, some might, to that, you know, torture machine in the princess bride right where they hook the guy up and it takes years off his life when they switch it on why is that you know because when that child needs a diaper change at 2 a.m when it needs to be fed what does it require some of your husbands are saying a mom will get up and go no that's not it it's both of you right no it requires a choice to sacrifice Over and over, it's either you or them, either your need of sleep gets met or the child's need of love and care and food gets met. You can't have both at the same time. And when that child gets a little older and they've got yet another practice or game to be driven to or yet another homework assignment to get done, it's either them or you. You give so they grow. You sacrifice so they live. And when that child gets a little older and their flaws begin to appear in dramatic ways, what does it require as a parent? It's you. You're stepping in front of that character flaw. Even risking their relationship, sacrificing maybe how they feel about you so they can flourish. If a parent really loves a child, a parent would gladly die in the place of that child so that child could live. And that's why the divine child abuse thing makes no sense because this is God sending himself to do whatever it takes so we can live all real love is Substitutionary sacrifice. And second, even more importantly, substitutionary sacrifice isn't just the basis for relationship. It's the basis for forgiveness. Forgiveness. I'll give you an example. Uh, A couple of years ago, my three sons were having a basketball dunking competition. You'll like this one, Aaron. Uh, in, the, in this little hoop in our, uh, in our upstairs you know, area where the, you know, in one of those hoops you hang over the door. And while this is going on, Carrie and I are downstairs trying to have a conversation, right? And uh, we hear the stakes begin to escalate. It begins to get more and more violent. Dunks get a little more aggressive. And then, then there was silence. <laughs> then an enormous crash followed by an uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> And I, of course, I fly upstairs to see three things. First, there's a chair about five feet from the door. There's a child, number two, holding his knee crying. And number three, there's a hole in the door. Hole in the door. And what had happened was they decided to increase the degree of difficulty and jump off the chair, right, to get more 
forward momentum and air, right? And one of my sons, who's got neither fear of injury nor sense of danger, uh, he went as hard as he could with his knee out. He made the shot, but he ruined the door. Now there's a hole in the door where there was none before. I make a rhyme every time. Sorry, I couldn't resist. And so what has to happen for the door to get fixed? Well, someone has to pay. Either the payment has to be made to get the door fixed or payment to be made to get a whole new door in general. But either way, for the door to get fixed, some kind of cost has to be paid. You say, well, you know, you could just forgive him. Yeah, fine. But forgiving him would mean I do what? It would mean I pay the cost. I absorb the cost. I pay it myself. I I put myself on the hook for what he did. See, the hole, the break, the damage isn't fixed until someone pays the cost. Forgiveness always involves substitutionary sacrifice. And the message of the Bible is that God is a personal God, right? And he wants a relationship with us. And when we hear that word personal, we really like that. We like it. Because when we hear personal, we really think personalized. Like our barista at Starbucks, right? We think God owes us like a triple non-fat double shot kind of life. We think he owes us that. We never imagine, though. He's far more personal than we could ever want and really than we would ever hope for. Because as a matter of fact, he's so personal, you might not want him in your life because he tells you that your personal choices and mine, the things that have gone against God's will and design for our lives in the world, what he calls sin, have created a hole in the world. A hole in the door, a break and a tear in the fabric of the relationship between us and God. It's that personal. Your life and his are. See, sin, though, of course, yes, it's not just personal. It's also structural because people take their personal sins, right? Institutionalize those things. And those cause damage in the world as well. So when Jesus says here in Matthew 26, not my will, but God's will be done That means he's recognizing God has sent me to personally fix the hole. That's number one. It's who Jesus was. He came to do the will of the Father. But he also came to do something else. Let's go a step further. Number two, we see he also, because he tells us, he came to drink the cup. And he prays this. He says, my father, if it is possible, may this, here it is, cup be taken from me. What's this? Well, the cup all throughout the Old Testament, it was a a symbol, it was a metaphor for divine judgment that God pours out against evil and wrongdoing. And by the way, again, I'll say it, you can't have it both ways here because some of you hear that thing about me and God pouring out wrath on evil and you say, oh, I just want a God of love. Don't like that whole wrath thing, right? But hear me, show me a, a father, show me a father who doesn't hate evil and act against it in his children's life, and I'll show you a father who's a coward. A coward. And the biblical God, he's saying, right here, isn't a coward. He's a good father who's going to act demonstrably against evil in the world. 
But, 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 something is happening here in the garden, like I said earlier, that tells you, though, what Jesus is feeling here is something different than anything Jesus Christ has ever felt or experienced before, because all throughout his ministry, you can see this, Jesus is totally in control. Even throughout the last week of his life, heading in even to his crucifixion, he's totally in control. And you can see it, a little something we read last week. The Pharisees said, let's not kill him this week because it's Passover. And if we do it during the Passover, it doesn't look real good, right? Bad political move. The people may riot. So let's not do it, let's not do it this week. We're not going to kill him this week. And yet they do. Why? Because Jesus was in control, not them. That's why he could say, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down on my own. But here, here, it's different. Look what it says when he enters a garden. It says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Literally, this is saying, Jesus is saying, I feel like I'm dying. I feel like I'm dying. What's this? What's Jesus saying? Well, if you want to see a bunch of stuffy theologians suddenly wax poetic about the Bible, just study this verse. Because what they all say is that Jesus, starting right here up until the, and here to the cross, had begun to taste something so wretched it made him sick. He had gone into the garden to pray, to be with his father, to gather strength for the journey, and found his father holding out a cup of judgment to drink, a cup of poison. And just a whiff of that almost broke him. We'll look at that in depth in a couple weeks when we get to the crucifixion. But now imagine, though, as one writer said, saw this, if just a whiff, if just a sniff, if just a sip of that cup in the garden almost broke him. What must the full experience of that on the cross have been like? What must have been like? That's what's going on here. Jesus is about to drink the cup, the cup of judgment poured out on evil in the world. That's who he was. He came to drink the cup. But what does that show us? Let me apply this in two ways. What does the cup show us here? Well, first I want to submit to you the cup. Actually, this whole scene shows us how real he was, how real Jesus really was. He really came. Because here's what I mean. No writer, no religious leader, church person would have made this up. There's nothing like this comparatively in ancient literature. I mean, come on, right? The founder of your faith tries to get out of his mission three times. Hmm? If you know your ancient Greek stuff, you know, uh, Socrates, right? Old Socrates, as Bill and Ted call him. Sorry, it's for you Gen Xers. He drank... (laughs) The hemlock, drank the hemlock, right? Fearlessly, kind of sneering at his, his adversaries. Right? All kind of martyrs, Christian martyrs. Jesus' people faced the fire or the lions bravely. What's Jesus doing here? Huh. Looks like he's cowering. He can barely bring himself to do what needs to be done. What kind of leader is this? Why would you want to follow someone who's, you know, basically is their knees knock when they get in front of the firing squad? Not very inspirational. Doesn't really want to make you rally the troops and say, remember the Alamo. Let's charge Rome. No, it doesn't make you do that, right? This doesn't help you found your faith. It only hurts you. The only reason you would ever include this is if it really happened and you wanted to get it right. 
Number one, that shows us who he really was. But second, I'm going to belabor this one. Uh, it shows us actually how cultural we really are. How cultural we really are. Here's what I mean. Now, some of you like this part, even though it's heavy, but you like this part. A lot of people in the West do today. Finally, they say, here's someone we can identify with, right? He's not an invulnerable, abstract deity. He's not just a hero who doesn't bleed. Jesus is sweating it, and we kind of like it, right? But you only like it because we live right here, right now, in this moment in time and space in the world. We think, we like this, right? I mean, Jesus, he's like, he's like Wolverine in the new Logan movie, right? He's powerful, but he bleeds. You know, we, we like that. But a billion people on the other side of the world today hate this passage. They hate it. They can't stand it. The idea of God becoming a man, oh, they can't take it because of this scene right here. God would never lower himself to do this, have a body that sweats and bleeds and begs. God's many things, but vulnerable and killable ain't one of them. You love it. At the same moment, they hate it. Why? What are they objecting to if Jesus is who he said he is? Well, they're objecting, as we can see, to his humanity. That's what they don't like, his humanity. But what do we object to on the other side of the world, on the other side of the page, if Jesus is who he says he is? We object to his divinity, his divinity. See, we think we're being so smart, so sensitive, so modern, right? So in touch, so insightful. When we call into question Jesus' divinity, reduce him to being a nice teacher. But we're not being super smart. We're just being super cultural. We're just doing what everybody else is doing, right? We're just next in a long line of Western people who have turned Jesus into a version of what their culture likes or doesn't like. What we're doing. Let me give you three examples. Sigmund Freud, number one, said, yeah, Freud said, you know, yes, Jesus, nice man, but he's not God. All that God stuff, thinking Jesus is God, God stuff is really just wish fulfillment. You just wish he were God. Why? Because his theory of the world is that everything is based on wish fulfillment. But hang on, what if when he insisted that Jesus wasn't divine and that he was God is really just wish fulfillment, what if that was his greatest wish fulfillment? What if his greatest wish fulfillment really was there's no God and therefore I can live how I want to sexually? That's what Freud wanted. He never turns, the point is, his cultural critique on himself. Second, Karl Marx uh, said, Jesus, yeah, good man, good man. But not God because all religion is the desire to make yourself feel better about yourself economically, sociologically. You Christians, you use the whole Jesus is God thing to pat yourself on the back about your wealth. You take the sovereignty of God thing. You beat poor people with it like, yeah, y'all were meant to be poor, right? Jesus was a nice man. He loved the poor, not really God. So let's base a whole economic system around that. But what if? What he believed about Jesus was a way to make himself feel better about his whole economic system. He made up. He never turns his critique on himself. Third, Frederick Nietzsche. Jesus says, yeah, Jesus is a nice guy, but not God, right? He said, you Christians only say that about Jesus because you want power over other people's belief system. But what if he said that because he wanted power? over other people's belief system. He never turns his critique on himself. And today, people say all the time, the only reason you Christians believe what you believe is because of where you were born, how you grew up. But for crying out loud, turn the critique on itself. What if the reason you today, if this is you, you're objecting to the gospel is because of where you were born, the family you grew up in, the schools you went to. If you grew up in a family or a culture that's 
skeptical of Jesus, of course you will be too, right? Don't you think you'll be skeptical of Jesus? Yeah, you will. The critique runs both ways. Point is, we don't object to the divinity claim because we're super smart. We're just super cultural. And we object primarily as divinity today because we recognize, we hate that it means that he has the right to exclude people. And we don't want anyone excluded from anything. But Jesus excluded people all the time. Newsflash. He taught about hell more than anyone and about the people who will go there for an eternity. You say, well, didn't he pull in all kind of diverse people, Morgan? Thought you talked about that last week, right? Yeah, he did. But the one thing all those diverse people had in common, and the one thing all us diverse people have to have in common, is that they knew they could not save themselves, and they needed a savior. They weren't fine how they were. They weren't perfect just how they were born, right? The ones who rejected Jesus, they weren't just the Pharisees, right? No, they were the Romans at the same time. Why? Because they were both trying to save themselves just in different ways. The Pharisees tried to save themselves through being real good, obeying the rules. The Romans through breaking the rules, living how they want, whatever God works for you, right? But neither one thought they needed saving. They were fine how they were. Jesus pulls in the ones who say, I can't save myself. And the ones who are excluded are the ones who say, I'm fine on my own. I'm a good person. Therefore, it's not the good or the bad who are included in his kingdom. It's the proud who get excluded. It's the humble who get in. And this whole scene, therefore, in the garden is to show us we need someone to save us. We need someone who's fully God and fully man. Yes, Jesus bleeds. He suffers, but he also obeys obeys. And here he decides now, now, now he's going to do it. He's going to obey no matter what. Jesus Christ regains his composure, sets his face towards his destiny, no matter the cost. He came to do the father's will and to drink the cup. And if we'll see and put those two things together, we let's ask now, what can, what should this do for us in the end? Finally, number three, It shows us we can, we should, put down the sword. Jesus prays this prayer. Now he's interrupted. It says, while he was still speaking, this climactic moment happens here. Judas Iscariot, his betrayer, right? He left the group earlier to make a deal with the devil, with the Pharisees. He's returned with not just some religious leaders, but it says, look at this, a large crowd armed with what? Swords and clubs. So Judas you got to get the picture. He's returned to the garden with an armed mob. And honestly, this is one of the most tragic scenes, I think, in the whole chapter. Why did Judas feel the need to return with an armed mob? It's Jesus. I mean, because here's why. Because even after all this time, Judas shows he still didn't get the kind of a kingdom Jesus was talking about. He didn't understand. Jesus had talked about a new way of life, about a new way of living, about a new way to handle power and authority. But after years of being around Jesus, Judas shows he still didn't get it. It's like he didn't know Jesus at all. I wonder if we do today. I wonder if we do. Do we get it? I don't want to be too hard on Judas here because he's not the only one who's living by the sword, is he? You know, there's someone else here. Who else lives by the sword here? 
It's Peter, yeah. After Judas' kiss, Peter comes unglued. He draws his weapon. He pulls out his piece, so to speak. And apparently, he tries to behead the nearest person. He sort of misses and only hacks off an ear. That's pretty gross. Of course, we know in John's gospel, Jesus heals it. But, uh, but Jesus says here, he says, put your sword, he's talking to Peter, back in its place, he says, for all, 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 all who draw the sword will die by the sword. What's he mean by this? Those who live by the sword will die by it. I'll tell you a story. I've got a pastor friend. His name is Seth. And Seth is a pretty brilliant dude. My friend Seth played football at Oregon State. But you never know. He was like a super jock guy. Because now he's gone full hipster. He's in Oregon. He drinks green tea. No coffee for him. Drinks green tea. You know, the rolled jeans. Uh, the glasses. Uh, the, the big plaid lumberjack shirts. He's just full hipster. But you can't blame him, right? He's in Oregon. He's got this great church. It's full. Full of hundreds and hundreds. Like a thousand college students there. Corvallis. And uh, it's the least church state in the country. You may know that. And he told me this story not too long ago. It illustrates this. And he told me I could share it with you. Uh, it, the story goes that he and his church, Seth, had been preaching through the book of Jonah. You know, the, the one about the guy and the big fish. And he'd been given the background of the book and showing how various voices throughout history, even conservative, you know, loving Jesus, orthodox church voices, had acknowledging Jonah may just be sort of a, you know, a story about, it's a real guy named Jonah, but a story written about Jonah's life to illustrate who God was. Because, you know, you read the book, Jonah's like a cartoon character. Well, he really is. He's ridiculous. And Seth's point was, while he believes it might, he, he thinks it might not be a historically true story on one hand. On the other hand, yeah, it could have happened that way. Because after all, we believe in a God of miracles who really did raise Jesus from the dead. And if he can raise a man from a dead, surely this could happen. Right? So, well, it's sort of a downstream miracle. That's just the point. And then he said the next day after he preached that sermon, the next day was a Monday. And Mondays are always the worst day for pastors, by the way, because Sundays are the day that when people who like what you said, they tell you, thumbs up, they text you. Mondays are the day that you get an email. Like some of you thinking about doing it right now. Because you've been stewing about it for 24 hours. It's just going to be complicated, right? No text message will hold your complaint. That's fine and fair, right? So Seth gets the email on a Monday, and it's from a parent of one of his students who had been visiting the church that weekend, and the email read only one line, where did you get that idea about Jonah? And instantly he reacted and thought, this person was offended. I presented another perspective on Jonah. Parents coming at me, let's go to war. And so Seth loaded up, he loaded up all his arguments, all his reasons why he was right. You know, 15 scholars, long email, and 100 ways he had a point, and he hit sin and thought, take that, lady. And he waited nervously for the response, something to the effect of, yeah, well, my child never set foot in your church again, kind of thing. But not too long after that, he got an email back. And the response went like this. It said, Seth, thank you for your thorough response. I loved your message. And I wanted to know where I could learn like you've learned. I'm so glad my child is in your church. And by the way, what's your address? I have a large financial gift I'd like to give your church. Sincerely, you know, mom. And he said he felt so guilty about it on one hand, and of course, grateful that nothing worse had happened. And he said, because here's what happened. He said, when I got that original email, I was afraid. 
I was afraid. After everything I was doing, everything I had working, I was working on, that it had all been in vain. He said, and I pulled out my email sword, right, to hack the lady's head off. He said, I was just, I was just like Peter in the garden trying to defend God and defend myself, but he's making a mess of things, right? And isn't this us? When someone attacks who we are, maybe even attacks who God is, right? <laughs> what we have or what we wanted or what we've built, we pull out our sword and we just take a swing at that thing, right? Man, Facebook posts, email, ice cold treatment, who knows what. But in a way, though, it's not just Peter here. The disciples are no different because out of fear, they don't catch this overfunction, right? They don't overreact, they underfunction. They underreact. They don't fight. They flight, right? These are two different reactions based in the same motive, which was fear. None of the disciples act how they should. Judas, out of a desire for money. Peter, for power. The rest, for self-preservation. Why? It's because they're all afraid. All afraid. What then can fix that thing in us? What can enable us then to put down fear-based sore drawing or fear-based self-preservation? Hear me. I'll tell you what won't fix it. What won't fix that fear is only receiving Jesus as a nice teacher, as a nice human example or a human being alone. It's not enough for him to be your own moral example because none of us can live up to him as an example. I mean, as an example, Jesus is terrifying. He's awful. I can't live up to that. Are you kidding me? And look at this. He can't just be, though, a nice teacher alone because the disciples in the garden, think about it, for three years, had all the teaching anyone could want, all the exampling a human being could ever hope for. And when the moment came, they all broke. Why? Because up till then, all they saw Jesus as was a teacher. All they thought he was was a good example And if you think Jesus has only come, wants to come into your life to be a nice moral example, only an inspirational figure, not only have you not been listening to the first two points, you've missed Jesus's point altogether. He isn't here as an example in this passage. He's here, hear me, as a substitute. Because look, have you noticed where this whole thing in the garden is taking place? Where is this community of Jesus breaking down? Where is he? He's in a garden, right? Oh, where did the first human community break down? In a garden, in a garden. When God came to Adam and Eve and they said, he said, obey me about the tree. He couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Obey me about the tree and you'll live. They couldn't do it. But Jesus here, can you see? He's beginning to fix the hole in the door that Adam kicked in, right? He's repairing the breach, fixing what's been broken, only it's going to be the reverse of what Adam got because in the first garden, God said to Adam, obey me about the tree and you'll live, and he didn't do it. But here God says to Jesus in the second garden, the last garden, obey me about the tree, the cross, and you'll die, and you'll die. You'll get what Adam should have gotten. So that now the sons and children of Adam can get what Jesus should have gotten. See, Jesus went under the sword of God's justice in our place as a substitute. This is the ultimate act of ultimate father love. What's he doing here? Not teaching, not exampling, but substituting 
in our place, your place, in the disciples' place. And when he did that, and when the disciples finally got it, and they saw him brought back to life, and they realized Jesus wasn't just a man, he was God come to earth, that changed him. And from then on, hear me, there was no more sword drawing, no more deserting. They followed him to the end, willingly gave their lives for him. You don't give your life for an example or for a teacher. But for God who substituted himself for you, you will. Because love does that. The miracle of the gospel is that you don't just get forgiven. You get a whole new power in your life. It'll put down the sword. Now we go out in the world, right? Into classrooms, into schools, in our homes with our roommates and children and families and parents. And in a small way now with that same power, we begin to be many substitutes. We begin to pay the smaller price for other people to be fixed, other holes to be put right. Even when we're misunderstood or unseen or taken advantage of, we can put down the sword because the sword's been put down against us on Jesus.